away for a few months on a retreat, my own retreat, and while gone, um, the Venerable Ajahn Chah, a teacher in Thailand, uh, died uh, January 15th or 16th, it's not clear. Um, If there are some things that you like about this center, good guess that a lot of them have to do with the influence of his teaching, quite frankly. So I wonder if we could just have 30 seconds of silence, even if you don't know who he is. Some of you have read Clear Forest Pool, and uh, it's an unusual blend of simplicity and profound wisdom, and humor as well. A very uh, wonderful teacher. Many of you like the teachings of Ajahn Sumedho. It was Ajahn Sumedho's teacher. Just for a few moments. Probably, probably, if he were here right now, uh, he would run me out of this hall for doing what I'm doing, which is talking about a sutra. His style was, uh, to put it mildly, he was not too scholarly. Uh, although he had had a little bit of training, it was basically a very simple, direct, profound, earthy kind of wisdom. There's one story, I think it's in... Uh, Clear Forest Pool, of a famous scholar, a Buddhist scholar who came to the monastery and kept asking him questions. And he kept talking about the practice, but she just wanted to know all kinds of fine points about this, that, and the other. And after a while, he gave up. So he said to her, "Um, you are like someone who comes to a chicken farm, and chickens walk around and they leave leave two kinds of droppings you know, droppings and eggs, and you gather up the droppings. (laughs) Uh, I hope there's at least some eggs in this tonight. It's not really meant to be scholarly. Um, But I am going to try and be thorough. Let me give you a sense of uh, how many people are here. We've only had one, uh, one talk. How many people are who were here at the first one? Okay. It's all right. In other words, I am not assuming that there'll be necessarily that much continuity. But what I'm going to do is dip into what has been said. Obviously, uh, I spent, we spent almost an hour and a half or two hours the first time. So I'll be very brief. And we'll just keep moving ahead, going backwards a little bit and uh, forwards a lot more. But what I also uh, would like to do as an experiment, well, I I hope it's helpful. Um, If if any people will volunteer to type up the tapes, um, well, first of all, you know, the tapes will be in the library, so really this may not even be necessary. Um, So if you've missed 
a talk and you're really interested in this sutra, in other words, you want to really go through it, I'm going to go through it in great detail with the emphasis being on practice, uh, even if it takes a few years, honestly. I, mean, I don't know how long it's going to take, but we're just going to keep going. Uh, it's not that any one of us would necessarily do all of the things that I'm saying, but what I'd like to do is have it available uh, on tape, certainly, but if we can get it typed up, we can leave just a verbal copy, a written a uh, transcript, a copy of the transcripts in the library, and if anyone misses something, you can just read it, uh, read it more quickly. Um, so if, if any of you feel like doing things like that, uh, just check in with the office. For those, are any, any people here very new to this form of meditation or very new to this center? Okay, when we left, le- last left off, uh, we had a report in the sutra. The first part of the sutra is uh, simply uh, a report of what went on. And there were apparently many, many yogis, uh, monks and nuns and lay people who practiced together for three months. The Buddha had given teachings on the breath scattered throughout. He had already been teaching for a while. But in this one retreat, he brought all of the teachings on Anapanasati, the full awareness of breathing, together. And the retreat went so well for three months. The tradition uh, in India was that you uh, have a a retreat for three months during the rainy season. There's not much else that you can do during that time period. as Buddhism has moved to other cultures, it's held at different times, three months. As you know, in Bari, it's more the fall, winter. So it's th- that's where the tradition began. And so things went so well that he extended it one more month, and people heard about it, and many more people came. And what he described was um, the value of this very simple practice of conscious breathing. That is essentially what the Buddha was saying, is that the practice of conscious breathing, if fully followed, uh, led to complete enlightenment. Uh, necessary for us to reflect on because the actual practice itself is so simple-minded in a way. I mean, you're doing a lot of attention to breathing that it might seem removed or remote or not too likely that such profound things could come out of such a simple practice. But the Buddha is saying that, and I have uh, another uh, something from the sutras to an interesting, I think, short statement. And so in reviewing the virtue of this practice, uh, the Buddha begins to uh, move into just what is this sutra about anyway. Now, uh, in talking about what is accomplished in doing this practice, basically uh, the different levels of enlightenment were mentioned. We've been over this, so I really don't want to repeat it. And so what is being said, which is true of all Buddhist practice, now you may not be here for that, don't worry about it, it's okay. But all Buddhist practice is about enlightenment, that's why we do it. Now, 
if you don't have that idea or you don't care about it and you, you have other motives, something brought you here, obviously. You just want to calm down. Perhaps your blood pressure is high. I don't know. Uh, it's not so important because what brought you here is not necessarily uh, what will keep you on the path if this turns out to be something of value to you. The motives change, can change. Many people have ex experienced that. And even those of you who have come here, perhaps you are uh, inspired by the idea of enlightenment, or whatever terms you have for it, whatever way you uh, think about it, final truth, ultimate truth, the truth, seeing into your true nature, coming to the end of birth and death, seeing the birthless state, the unborn, the deathless state, total liberation. These are just different words that are used to describe it. If you've come here for some of that, I mean, some of us, like myself, are a little bit more pretentious. Uh, we have to be careful. But finally, it, it, it doesn't mean necessarily that those of us who've come here with that in mind and know full well that the practice is about human liberation, that we're any more holy or any more uh, advanced, in quotes, than those of you who came here because um, you're a little shy and you just want to be less shy. Um, during this retreat that I just did, um, there was one point towards the end of the retreat, and I was practicing uh, the month of, most of the month of December and, and all of January. Uh, there was no one there. I was alone. So if you could understand this in the context of no one being around when this happened. Uh, and suddenly I had a memory of, of many years ago of something that happened to me having to do with the urge to get enlightened. And it connected with something that I had uh, knew about much more recently, and I realized that they were the same thing. And it struck me as so funny that I was uncontrollable in terms of laughing. It went on and on and on. There was no one there. So I could really enjoy myself. <laughs> anyway. Um, the original event, which I hadn't thought of in a long time, and when I tell you the event, you'll see why I hadn't thought of it in a long time, happened actually at IMS. I think it was the first year of IMS, and I was doing my own retreat in my room. Uh, and I don't know, about midway through the retreat, in one sitting at about 11.30 or so, right, um, the mind got just so still, so quiet, so full of joy and bliss and peace and uh, and I, I was sure, this is it. This is what I've been reading about in books. This is what I've wanted. Here it is. It's coming. It's around the corner. Any second now, <laughs> full and total enlightenment. At which point the lunch bell rang. And I just, without hesitation, unfolded my legs and went downstairs so that I can get my vegetables and my rice. And then after it was over, I realized, wow, wait a minute. Uh, so no matter what we express to ourselves and however we think of ourselves, the truth is I prefer to, a good meal to enlightenment. <laughs> I don't even know it was a good meal. I mean, the promise of a good meal. Okay. It was uh, humorous, but also humiliating, you know, to see that 
Wow. But on the retreat, in retrospect, uh, I didn't experience it as humiliating, but just very interesting. <laughs> Suddenly I had, uh, what was brought back was a story that was told to me, a Japanese story. And I realized it was the same story, only in Japan. Uh, and in this story, uh, it's about Japanese, they have a kind of theater in Japan where monkeys are trained to play out roles in a classic, classical kind of theater. That is, the monkeys play parts in, it would be like Shakespeare for us. <laughs> They're dressed up, all decked out in outfits, and they play famous uh, scenes, classical scenes, and everyone in the audience knows who's who. And there was one scene, a very famous scene, where a famous general is facing off against a famous, famous emperor. And they're all decked out, and the, everyone is quiet and focusing on these monkeys, dressed up. And then suddenly, someone throws a banana out onto the <laughs> stove. And you already understand. The, the monkeys completely broke roll and just ran after the banana. Okay. I think it's safe to assume that the poor monkeys we're doing the whole thing to get the banana anyway. You know, like, what do these human beings want from me? You know, just sort of, okay, I'll put on this silly stuff and do what they tell me so I can get a banana. But here, they didn't even have to do it. Here's the banana. Suddenly, all this high drama out the window. You get my drift? <laughs> so, whatever our high and noble ideals may be, I, probably we all have a monkey inside of us as well that uh, is much more interested in some, you know, hard cash. None of this Anatara Samyak Sambodhi being beyond birth and death and all that stuff. But that's what Anapanasati is. That is, as you work with the breathing, it takes you deeper and deeper into, it has a direction. It definitely has a direction. Okay. I'm not going to read the whole portion of the sutra. I covered uh, all of section one. Those of you who would like to read the sutra, Thich Nhat Hanh has a nice little book called The Full Awareness of Breathing, or it's called Breathe, You Are Alive. And that's a nice translation. The translation I use is not exactly the same, but almost. OK, I'm backing up just a little bit for those of you who are here. Uh, in section two, it says, O bhikkhus, which means O monks, the method of being fully aware of breathing, if developed and practiced continuously, will, if we have time, I hope, go into what that means continuously, will have great rewards and bring great advantages. You get a banana, I don't know. <laughs> it will lead to success in practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. If the method of the four foundations of mindfulness is developed, and practice continuously, it will lead to success in the practice of the seven factors of awakening. We will cover all of this in detail in due time. The seven factors of awakening, if developed and practiced continuously, will give rise to understanding and liberation of the mind. Final freedom. What is the way to develop and practice continuously the method of full awareness of breathing so that the practice will be rewarding and offer great benefit? That's the question. And the Buddha answers. 
It is like this, bhikkhus. The yogis go into the forest or to the foot of a tree or to any empty dwelling and sit stably with crossed legs holding his or her, adding, his or her body quite straight and arouses mindfulness. Breathing in, he knows that he is breathing in. Breathing out, he knows that he is breathing out. Okay, we'll just talk about that for a little while. Oh, uh, there's a... yeah. When you hear the bell, it's called the bell of mindfulness, just be with three breaths, and Bob has license to interrupt me at any time. suggest is that you listen while staying in touch with your breathing so that we're already beginning to put this sutra into action. Uh, Those of you who know about the practice, and I have compassion for some of you who come here a lot because you are going to have to hear some details that you have heard fairly often, very often. Uh, But the breathing is, uh, conscious breathing is an attempt is designed to help us stay wakeful in all situations. It's not just informal sitting. So that right now you're sitting and listening. And see if you can stay in touch with the breathing in such a way, so that's in a wake in the background. It's kind of nourishing your awareness. But the key, of course, is to lis- be listening to what's being said. And it, uh, when you get the knack of it, It cuts down a lot of distraction, a lot of wandering off, a lot of unnecessary thinking, a lot of forgetfulness. So you may as well start practicing. One fine point, right off the bat, let's say uh, you hear the bell and you you go to to your breathing three times. Sometimes, especially if you've been practicing for a while, you can drop into a place of uh, very deep stillness, absorption, pretty still even. Then when uh, that period is over and the talking starts again, you may actually be more attentive to your breathing and not hear what's being said, or barely hear what's being said. Uh, this is not, you know, it's nothing personal. That would be a misuse of the practice. In other words, what we have to learn, there are times when we focus on the breath in an exclusive way, the purpose being to become deeply absorbed. That's, that's the purpose of that kind of practice. It's one main practice we do. We call it shamatha, samadhi. We become absorbed, and that is a useful use of the breath. We literally sink into the breathing and leave everything behind. But then there's another mode in anapanasati, which is the second major mode, where we stay in touch with the breath in order to nourish mindfulness of some aspect of reality. So there, uh, the mindfulness is supposed to be helping us pay attention to what's going on, whether it's inside or not. It's not to use the breath to get lost in it. Do you, do you see the difference? And it can be subtle. Okay. Okay, uh, we haven't gotten to the first contemplation yet. There are 16 contemplations, and already there's a fair amount to be said. Uh, 
with, with crossed legs. I have to backtrack on that. We went through it last week, but a, a number of people pressed me on that. I got some notes and one phone call. Uh, the sitting upright and sitting crossed legs. The question is, uh, I tried to skim over it. I had a reason for it, but some of you caught me. Uh, is, the, is the sitting cross leg, does that mean the full lotus, Padmasana? That is, sitting with both legs, one over the other. Uh, very often you'll see the Buddha in it. And uh, uh, is that what's meant? And I would say the answer is yes. Uh, the reason I passed over it is that uh, it makes people feel inadequate, unnecessarily so. Uh, or you feel that unless you develop that posture, you're not really doing the practice. And it just adds another way to suffer. You know, we already have enough. Um, the truth is, I did that suffering for you, so you don't have to do it. I can sit in the full lotus. It took me 10 years of very, very hard work. Uh, the first year, I couldn't even get into it. The second year, I could get into it for about five minutes. And then little by little by little, it is now very, very comfortable for me, the most comfortable sitting posture. But uh, to put so much time and energy into it would be a waste of time. And for most of us in the Western world, it would take such hard work that it really is a distraction. It's not that important. I mean, it's nice. I like it. It's helpful. I can tell you in theory what, what it is, you know, why it's helpful. Uh, and in practice as well. But uh, so those of you who are interested in that, it's not worth it. Now, if you can get into the full lotus, quite naturally, and some people can, then you might want to consider consider it, because it can, be, it can be mastered like anything else. But most modern people, it isn't even Westerners, I, I have, uh, a Japanese monk told me that even in Japan now, and in Asia in general, that mo even the monks don't sit full lotus. The uh, uh, diet and the uh, sitting in chairs has uh, so affected us that that posture is really very diff difficult for modern people to sit in. Uh, I had a very wonderful stern teacher, the teacher that I had, for example, he felt it was absolutely necessary to learn the full lotus, unless you had some physical disability. And I went along with it. And he would, uh, he was very shrewd. He saw that I liked to study. So he said, okay, from here on in, you can only study for as long as you can sit in the full lotus. Uh, so it was an interesting way of learning. Of course, I, you know, I tried to stay in it as long as I could. And, it, so it both cut down my studying, which was good. Because <laughs> I, I needed it. You know, he was no fool. And little by little, uh, you know, the body can learn to sit that way. And he advised, you know, when you're watching TV, sit in the full lotus. If you're, uh, it sees every opportunity to do it. And then on one retreat, this was a, a, a retreat in Korea, I just did it and did it and did it. But it was very, very painful and it was very grim. And... Um, I think it was, uh, you know, it's not so important. Once you get into it, what it does, but any good seating posture, uh, which, uh, can, which can be developed, you don't need to go into the full lotus, provides you with a necessary physical basis. That can be very, very helpful. If you sit in the full lotus, it's very, very balanced. Uh, it's very easy for the spine to be erect uh, and to learn how to sit in a, in a relaxed and attentive way for long periods of time once you master it. But what I'm saying is it is so difficult to master it for us. Uh, the amount of time and energy going into it is uh, it's just in the service of the ego, usually. It was for me.
You know, I remember one time sitting in it like this, and one, this is later on, another teacher came around and he tapped me on the shoulder and I, you know, I looked up and then he pointed to my full lotus and he said, that's the whole problem for you. Do you know what he was trying to say? You know, sort of like this kind of thing. Uh, I did have that. It's just a posture. It's a good posture, but uh, we, need to, what is, we need to accomplish what is called acquire a receipt. That's important. But don't be literal about that. It, needn't be, it can be a chair. The real seat, finally, is for the mind to sit in the full lotus. That's what we're, we're learning how to do. Or is for attention to be so stable that it can be unwavering in the face of whatever happens. Now, let's stay with this for a moment, because although I'm suggesting that unless the full lotus comes easily to you, just think of it as cross-legged and sit however you do, or use the Seiza bench or whatever. It, the, the main thing is to develop some, uh, if the spine is straight, that's helpful, and to learn how to be stable and comfortable. But all of the sitting postures, including being in a chair, is one aspect, a very important aspect, but not the final aspect, of what is called acquiring a seat. So that simple thing of sitting cross-legged really has some, some depth of meaning in back of it. Now, acquiring a seat, let, let's just look at it from a physical point of view for a moment. Think of a tree in a very powerful storm, a very powerful uh, storm with powerful winds and rain. And, you know, we've all seen, you know, you can see the tree just being blown back and forth by the wind. But a strong tree doesn't, it may look as if it's going to fall over, but it doesn't because it has very deep roots. And the roots uh, protect it, so it goes first in one direction and another direction. You can't see the roots, but they're there. Now, when the physical body learns how to uh, develop that kind of stability, I'm, I'm merely talking about the physical body in whatever way you sit, uh, can you see how that is a great asset? But now, of course, it's not sitting in the rain and in the wind. What happens is the assaults of the mind when very powerful emotions come up, very powerful emotions of fear and loneliness and anger and so forth. When these emotions come up, having a physical base can definitely be a help. And it takes a while. It's not something you, uh, you don't acquire a seat by buying a meditation cushion somewhere. You know, uh, this one is a more of an inner development. But finally, the deep meaning isn't so much about the physical body sitting that way uh, as the mind learning, using the physical body as a support. Now, as we go through the first four contemplations, probably this evening we won't get to them. We'll probably maybe get through the first two. Uh, you'll see that part of what happens in acquiring a seat is as you follow the breathing while seated so that it's good to find a way of, of sitting that is reasonably comfortable and stable and then over a period of time and probably we're talking about years what happens is the body learns how to sit still but the most important uh, factor that contributes to the body learning how to sit still is the mind and that's why the full lotus is not really so important as uh, the breaths become deeper and longer, and we'll get to that in a moment, uh, and more calm, quite naturally the body becomes more calm and can sit still for longer periods of time without fidgeting and itching and scratching. You know, we have all...
when the bell rang, where were you? Did you know? Do you know? I mean, I know where I am at least once this time. <laughs> I absolutely was doing what I was doing. Were you off somewhere? Were you here? Try to use the breathing as we go on and the bell. Um, so that the, uh, the, the, the first four contemplations have as part of the development this capacity to uh, have a stability, a stability that can uh, sustain itself in the face of deep fears, deep uh, vexation of the mind, and so forth, all the things that we human beings go through. So to begin with, just to develop a posture. See, uh, the spiritual technologies of the East are highly sophisticated. You have to understand that. Uh, This goes back thousands of years. And uh, this is a form of philosophy, love of wisdom. And every aspect of the full whole person is, is thought of to help us. Even how we sit can be an asset. And, of course, how we breathe can be an asset. And so they developed a very deep understanding of all the different things, the different factors and conditions that contribute to a mind seeing deeply into itself, understanding and letting go, letting go of that which uh, needs to be let let go of, the burdens, the suffering. So it's a very detailed uh, science. Okay, when you sit with your legs, you know, sit more and more comfortably and stable. Both are important for it to become reasonably comfortable and stable. And for those of you who are pretty new, and new might might mean 10 years, I don't know, uh, please be patient. Uh, It takes a while for the body to learn. Diet is a factor. In my own case, this teacher uh, strongly emphasized vegetarian diet for all kinds of reasons, but one was much less uric acid, uh, less stiffening of the body. he encouraged me to eat things like alfalfa, which apparently has something, I don't know if scientists have understand it, but it's an anti-stiffening agent, which seemed to help. Um, okay. Holding the body quite straight arouses mindfulness. When the body is planted like a tree, the breath flows freely, and the breath is central to much of what we're talking about. And the mind is much more likely to be alert, fresh, and awake for extended periods of time. So we're beginning to already move into this practice, and every bit helps. And we need all the help we can get, as probably we all know. Okay, breathing in, he knows that he is breathing in. Breathing out, he knows that he's breathing out. Ooh, so much is said in just that sentence. Do you know if you just took that and let's say don't listen to the rest of this that's going on, but took that and really devoted your life to it? I don't mean drop everything else. What I mean is, look, whatever we're doing, we're always breathing. What I meant was begin to become conscious of the breathing which is happening anyway. Um, And of course, sit quietly with it sometimes. Tremendous things are possible just from that one phrase. When you're breathing in, you know that you're breathing in. When you're breathing out, you know that you're breathing out. It's already quite an accomplishment. And we haven't even gotten to contemplation one. But the reason that's so is because they're all based on this. This is the, everything is an elaboration and extension of this very basic thing. That when you're breathing, to know that you're breathing. 
Why? What's so important about breathing? Well, what we're contemplating when we're breathing in and when we're breathing out, uh, you can look at it in many ways, but clearly one thing that we're contemplating is our own life. That is, we're, we're, seeing, uh, we're seeing life come, the life energy come in, life energy go out, uh, wastes go out. We know, we come into life with breath, and when we breathe our last, we call it death. If there's an in-breath, and then an out-breath, and there's not another in-breath, curtains, we call that death. Okay, so it's a very unassuming character, this breathing. And that's the heart of this sutra. By and large, we're not too concerned with it. Not really. Uh, we are, let's say, some of us may have specialized in- interests. If we're a singer or an athlete or when we get sick, of course we care about it. But what this is saying, we're contemplating something that is pretty unassuming. It's usually in the background where everything else is uh, kind of the star of the show. Actually, there's a, an Indian uh, teaching story on the breath. There was a conference of all the, all the faculties, that is, the uh, senses, all got together. And in Buddhist uh, teaching, there are six senses, the five senses that we know, and the mind is considered a sense, and the breath was another one. And they all gathered together, and they had this conference, and the question was, who is going to be in charge of the conference? And so sight took over first. And it said, uh, and what it did was, it just created incredibly beautiful images. And people were just uh, totally captivated by the beauty of what sight created. Wonderful forms and colors and shapes. People were in tears at how beautiful it was. At which point, the uh, smell entered in and created aromas that were unbelievable. Just people had never smelled anything like that and were just as deeply moved. Not to be left out, taste got in and conjured up incredibly delicious tastes. <coughs> tastes that were beyond what anyone had ever tasted. The body got in, the, the senses, sensitivity to the body, feelings in the body that were so glorious and wonderful. And sound jumped in. Sounds that were musical, that were beyond what anyone had ever heard. So fulfilling that everyone was enraptured with sound. And then finally the mind spun out beautiful intellectual theories that were so elegant and logical. And everyone was so taken by it. But then the breath said, came out and it said, no, I want to be in charge. And everyone just laughed the breath out, oh, come on. And they uh, actually demeaned the breath, and they wouldn't even let the breath start talking. They were struggling with each other as to who was going to be in charge, all the senses. And finally, the breath was so discouraged because there was no attention being paid to the breath that the breath started to walk away from the conference and to leave, at which point all of the senses started to fizzle out. And everything started to, uh, like a wilt, and run out of energy. At which point they begged the breath, please come back to our conference. You know, you can be in charge. We all need you. So the Indians of, uh, in ancient India, I I would say modern India is a totally different thing, have had enormous respect for the breath, understanding the powerful effect that it has on the mind, on the body. 
And they've had sciences of the breath. All of their spiritual sciences have had some form of pranayama. Many of you know that. Sometimes defined as breath control, which I don't think is quite getting at it. And anapanasati, which is what we're practicing, is really, uh, in Sanskrit, ana is the life energy, prana is life energy coming in, and apana is, life, is the waste going out, prana going out. And if you put it together, it's anapana. So this is Buddhist pranayama. Buddhist, uh, the first four in particular, uh, is the Buddhist science of breath. Uh, what this is about in Indian spirituality, there was a clear recognition of the importance of having the breathing be full, deep, healthy, in short, uh, as an adjunct to the healthy functioning of the body and the mind, so that there, there could be, again, just as the sitting posture and so forth, another factor contributing to the ability to see deeply in, into ourselves. In and of itself, it, it's, it may not be enough. It's, it's just one factor. Now, in Anapanasati that we practice, how many people here have done some form of pranayama, in other words, yoga breathe, yogic breathing? Yeah. Okay. Now, in most of those, you are controlling the breathing, right? It's direct. You have ratios of breath, and you learn how to breathe deeply and to empty and hold the breath and so forth. In the form that the Buddha devised, uh, it's a very, it's also uh, designed, in part it designs some of the very same things. Uh, it accomplishes the very same things, but it's done not by controlling the breath, but simply by being aware of the breath. Those of you who have been following the breath for a while, uh, some of us have been doing it for years now, uh, you know that although it's not strictly speaking, at least in our practice, emphasized as a form of breath therapy, there's no question that the quality of breathing changes over time simply because it becomes conscious. As the mind quiets down, the breath quite naturally becomes more liberated. It becomes more full, more deep, more peaceful, more calm. And with that come consequences, both physical and psychological. So th this is th this form, and that's another factor to help us uh, pay attention. Now, what do we do with a bit of that? I know most of us here have, with your eyes open or closed, you can close your eyes if you wish. I'm just going to talk about this, learning to breathe in and breathe out just a little bit. It means just what it says. Nothing esoteric. Pay attention to your breath and notice that sometimes it comes in. It's like the body fills up with air and the air stays for a little bit and then it empties itself. And this first instruction is saying that to know that. Now the knowing here is not intellectual. It's simply direct perception. It's the direct experience, the intimate and direct experience of the breath happening. Just feeling it. And you can feel the effect of a breath. Let's say when you breathe in, if you're attending to it, let's say at the nose, you can feel some breaths, uh, you can feel they go deeply into the body. You can feel them at the abdomen or even 
uh, deeper than the abdomen, and some breaths seem to be very shallow. You, you don't feel them in a very deep way at all. Now, what we're learning, this very first exercise, the Buddha's already started, we're learning how to allow the breathing to follow its own nature, how to simply breathe itself. We're not trying to make the breath deep. We're not trying to keep the breath shallow. We're just being aware of the breath. And if it is deep, we notice it. And if it is shallow, we notice it, so that when we're breathing in deeply, we're aware that a, breath, a, a deep breath is happening. When we're not, when we're breathing in, shallow, in a shallow way, we're aware that that's happening. And even in this very preliminary way, there's profound training that's beginning for us. Let me see if I can uh, bring it out as best I can. If the instructions are to let the breath happen rather than to make it happen, that's clear. That's what the instructions are. But what that flies in the face of is the tremendous training and conditioning that we have to orchestrate, control, direct everything. We're terrified of chaos, terrified that if we don't put everything in its place, it'll just fall apart. And so probably most of us here are very good at controlling. In fact, we'd probably like to get better, be more organized, be more in charge of our life, be more controlled. And here the instruction is saying, allow the breath to just happen naturally, and then just see it, just notice it, just examine it experience it and know how it is, the quality of it, the, its characteristic. Now, to do that, perhaps you've already seen it, and uh, those of you who've been here for a while, of course you've seen it, it flies in the face of this tendency that we have to control the breathing, <coughs> of to not let the breath just come in as it seems to want to, or to go out as it seems to want to, but to take charge, to ride on it, to push it along a bit, or to help it out, And especially when we hear that this is now part of this incredible sutra, the Buddha attained enlightenment, of course now the ego suddenly wakes up again. It didn't know that there was any cash value to the breathing. But now it knows, and that makes it even more likely that it's going to try to not control the breath. But in doing so, it controls the breath. And so this very first lesson we're learning is a lesson in surrender. Can you... See how that is a surrender? We have fear of a lot of things, fear of <clears throat> letting go, fear of, if, of not tampering with things, of just allowing everything to run its natural course. This kind of mind is not something that we've gotten much in terms of our education and our training. And the very first lesson is already beginning that, learning how to surrender to the breath just as it is. Now. This is key in all spiritual work, in all Dharma work.
give you a glimpse of where the, the teaching leads, if we can learn to allow the breath to just un- unfold in a, just naturally without tampering with it, without in any way controlling it, uh, as you'll see when we move into the other contemplations with five on, then the question becomes, can we also allow, allow the mind to do that? So we're practicing on the breath, which is a lot easier. But then once we get to the mind, can we allow ourselves to allow the mind to just empty itself of whatever is there without interfering with that as well? Some of the free association techniques in psychoanalysis, I feel, is in some ways getting at a similar thing. Complete let go. But when we get to the mind, there's even more of a tendency to have the steering wheel and our foot on the brake and really edit what's happening we're afraid of what might turn up. It may be something that we, it's embarrassing to our image or what have you. So just in allowing the in-breath to be the in-breath and the out-breath to be the out-breath, we're planting seeds. We're beginning to learn something that eventually will help us uh, to, uh, beca- to, to come to freedom. Because in this practice, the practice of full awareness of breathing, uh, the mind liberates itself, and my own way of uh, viewing what the practice is about is that it's coming to see your original nature, your true nature. It's the same as nirvana. You come to see your true nature, that is, your face bef- even before your parents were born. What did your face, in Zen they'll ask, what did your parents look, what, did, what was your face even before your parents were born? What did you look like? Well, how could that be? It makes no sense logically. It's pointing to a place that has nothing to do with conditioning. There are many techniques to help us uh, tap that depth. The depth that's already our original or true nature is already here. It's sitting here right this moment. We're not importing it from Japan or India. It's right here. But the way that this practice works, this particular form or technique, is when you sit still and learn how to uh, develop uh, calmly surrender to the breathing. What starts to happen, it's an invitation. It's an invitation for everything that's inside of you to start coming to the surface. So if you don't want to know what's inside of you, you've come to the wrong place. You know, it's like going into a barber shop and then the person says, yeah, come on in the chair. And then you sit in the chair and he starts to cut your hair and you say, no, 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 I didn't come here for this. I said, but this is a barber shop. No, I just wanted to read the Newsweek magazine. Uh, what you're doing is you're asking, you know, when you sit quietly and calmly, eventually what starts to happen is whatever is there, it's invited out. It starts to come to the surface. And of course, it's a gradual and very, and very much tailored to each one of us as an individual. That's why the interview is so vital here and in practice. And what happens is not that complicated. It, it's uh, not easy. But what happens is we're learning how to allow whatever is inside of us to come up and to be examined in the light of awareness and to be transformed. The energy that's in all of the things that, you know, the fear and the anger and the loneliness and the despair and all the things that make up every human being, uh, there's tremendous energy in that. And we're allowing that to come up so that it can be transformed through the flame of attention. Attention, mindfulness, whatever you want to call it, we're developing that over and over and over and over again. That's probably all you hear around here. Be mindful, be mindful, pay attention. 
and the breath is brought along with it to help conscious breathing nourishes this mindfulness. And more and more we develop the capacity to see deeply into and through whatever is there, and its problematic nature is dissolved. So often, I don't know if any of you have noticed this, those of you who have practiced for a while, you don't really, often you don't solve your problems, you dissolve them. And some people are not satisfied with that. You know, it's sort of like someone will say, hey, you know, you used to be such a, an angry person or irritable. You don't seem to be that way so much since you've been meditating. Oh, is that true? And then you realize that's fine, but then you've got to figure it out, you know, uh, analyze it and figure it out. And how did that happen? The, the truth is it's gone or it's, it's weakened. And a lot of it is just the energy has been taken out of it. It's just gotten, and sometimes it's gone, just period. And if you need words to move along, you know, it's going to be a slower journey, a very bumpy journey, uh, to accompany you every step away to, along the way to tell you why it is that you're feeling the way you are. You have to write a poem or a short story or an essay about everything that you're doing. Uh, it's okay, but it's going to take longer. If you can be just simple-minded. See, Ajahn Chah was just, came from a rural background. He didn't know anything. He didn't, he didn't know that much about Buddhism, to tell you the truth, in my opinion. Yeah, he was fortunate. No, you have to know a certain, certain amount, of course. Uh, but he knew enough to know that there's no, we can't escape from ourselves, and that if there's a way to help us take a look at ourselves, that's the only way to go beyond suffering. There are no shortcuts. It must include self-understanding, self-knowledge. And so here's a whole way of doing that. Um, so can you see how surrender is important in this technique? It's more and more learning how to open, to stretch, to be available to uh, whatever turns up. And of course, more and more our capacity, let's say the, our heart opens, we're able to embrace more and more aspects of ourselves, particularly those aspects of ourselves that we've dissociated ourselves from. We just allow it all to just happen. Okay. We want to also allow some time for questions. I'm going to, I think, uh, I would like to at least for this period cover the first two contemplations. We're now going into the, in the, in the uh, teachings of the Buddha, there are 16 contemplations. They unfold, to some degree they're progressive and systematic. It's like a training that you undergo. It's quite naturally the way the mind unfolds. And I'm going to read to you the first two because this can be your homework between now and next week. I used to teach, and I can't help it. I can't get rid of that. I used to teach in the school system. Okay. Breathe, here's the first contemplation. Breathing in a long breath, the yogi knows I'm breathing in a long breath. Breathing out a long breath, the yogi knows I'm breathing out a long breath. Breathing in a short breath, the yogi knows I'm breathing in a short breath. Breathing out a short breath, the yogi knows I'm breathing out a short breath. Let me uh, go through uh, some of that and kind of uh, get you started on it. A long breath uh, would be simply as you're breathing, you feel the breath go, you feel, let's say, the abdomen uh, fill up, swell up, or you can feel breath sensations. 
that is, the movement of the diaphragm sets waves of pressure going. And you can actually feel the effects of breathing throughout the entire body. When you get very, very quiet, when you've done this practice for a while, you can feel breath sensations in every part of your body, in your toes, in your arms. The body becomes transparent. It becomes very light. It can feel weightless. And it feels uh, it's all accessible. This is not some special, exotic, occult state. It can happen to anyone in this room. It's just from application, just by learning how to be with the breath more continuously. The breath quite naturally becomes deeper and more full. So that's a long breath. And then a shallow breath is when we feel the breath, perhaps we mainly feel it, let's say, to the chest, and we don't feel much beyond that. Okay, but this is shorthand. When the Buddha is saying in these first two contemplations, know when you're breathing in deeply, know when you're breathing in, in a shallow way, what uh, is beginning now is, it, uh, the emphasis is on learning. This is a, a kind of a, these are the, the teachings of nature. We're learning about the Dharma. One meaning of Dharma is nature, the way things are, the lawfulness of it all. Only the nature that we're studying here is not the ocean or the, the planets. We're studying ourselves. We're, we're studying nature in ourselves, this very intimate natural rhythm of the breathing. What could be more intimate? We're with it. And we notice that sometimes the breath is deep and sometimes it's shallow. Now, the whole purpose of these first two is to gain familiarity with breathing. It's to use breathing as an object to train our attention, to develop this capacity to see with greater precision, to see more clearly. It's like being given uh, something to practice on. Now, some of you have been practicing for a while. Have you really accepted the breath yet as your meditation subject? Have you? You know, I, I, I ask that in all sincerity. There are some people uh, having trouble following the breath, but one of the reasons they are is that they haven't fully acknowledged what it is they've set about to do to themselves. See, uh, meditation, like anything worthwhile in this life, requires devotion. And by devotion, I don't just mean brute force. I don't mean that at all. I mean, you definitely need effort and energy. But devotion is a, a relationship to... Uh, in meditation, put it in the realm of meditation, whatever it is, if it's koans or if it's mantra, there's a need to be devoted to it. And so in our, our path is the path of the breath, conscious breathing. That's, that's at this center, that's what's emphasized. Uh, see if you've gotten to that point, and it's not to fake it, you can't, but have you gotten to the point where perhaps you have, have enough confidence now, you've done enough practice to realize, you know, there is something in this breath stuff. It's not just the Buddha said, and this one said, and all the rest. And you begin to understand that you have available to you and accessible a medium, a means, to accomplish something worthwhile. Uh, as you begin to have that attitude, that means you now are devoted to your meditation subject. Well, it's a whole different approach. There's now a keen interest. The truth is, very often we don't have it because we're still preoccupied with our, our story. Aren't we more interested in he said, she said, and then they said, and they went, and he went? And Aren't we much more interested in that than just in, out, in, out? Come on. We want to know about what the mind is cooking. And the practice is very gradually 
gracefully and gently weaning ourselves from the compulsion to get attached to each and every production of the mind. All of the, pre- the preoccupations that pour out of the mind, which we helplessly run after like a dog running after a bone. What we're learning is, let it go. It's okay. But wait a minute, I just understood what Einstein's formula I know. No, it's okay, let it go. Just go back to the breath in, out, to let it all go. Let it all, not struggle with it, but just let whatever is coming out to come out and just come and go. Now, if you develop a relationship to the breath as a meditation subject, when that comes, and it comes from you, from your own heart, no one can really give it to you. We can, I can tell you it's a wonderful thing. Thich Nhat Hanh just said he's been following his breath for 50 years and he's still surprised. It's still all kinds of new lessons from it. There's no doubt about it. I haven't been at it 50 years, but quite a while, and it keeps getting more and more interesting. Now, of course, it's not just the breath. The breath is leading to where it's all coming from. Okay, so um, when we're, we're given this exercise or a contemplation, notice if the breath is long or short. In order to do that, you have to pay attention. Okay, you pay attention. But it's also getting to all the other qualities of the breath. It's starting to notice that sometimes the breath is very fine, like uh, silk, you know, or, or satin. It's just wonderful to breathe. At other times, the breath is uh, very coarse, like uh, burlap. I mean, it's, or it, sometimes it just flows so freely, so beautifully and freely. Uh, at other times, it seems like each breath is a struggle. You know, it's just fighting to come in, fighting to go out. Uh, sometimes the breath is so deep and soothing and uh, seems to affect the whole body, calming. And at other times, the breath is so short and pinched off and hurried and agitated that uh, our minds and bodies are like that. And we're very, very restless and uncomfortable. And so this, these first two exercises are introducing us to the world of the breath because if you take this path, that means the breath is going to be your companion for quite a while, for some of us for the rest of our life. I mean, it, all, it all, all, all is for all of us. I mean, conscious breathing as a method is something that you may be doing for the rest of your life. And we're beginning at the beginning. You know, if the breath is going to be so helpful, let's get to, to know it. <laughs> So we begin to see the different flavors of breath that we have. Breath is so different, one breath from the other. We begin to see its effect on the body. That is, you may notice, some of you already may have seen, that when the breath is deep and smooth and even, the body uh, feels that way. The mind settles down. It's easier to sit longer and more comfortably. And when the breath is very short and hurried and agitated, the body follows suit. It's just like that. You begin to see that the breath is a very powerful conditioner. That is, uh, it affects life. Obviously, it's, one, it's, in a sense, the most powerful conditioner. Because when breath begins, the life of the body begins. Life as we know it begins. 
And so it stands to reason that that quality, that force, that life force, biological force, is affecting everything that's happening. It's also very delicate. It is being affected by everything that happens. Have any of you seen in your practice, the breath is very smooth and deep. You feel so happy to be just sitting and practicing. You're going to buy a ticket to Thailand. You're so, such a good sitting, so nice. And then you have an ugly thought, you know, just one ugly thought. Didn't even say goodbye the right way when I left the house this morning. And so the whole, it's gone. The breath suddenly, the whole deck of cards falls apart. And then the breath starts going very quickly and agitated. And then the body gets uncomfortable. And then the mind gets even more unhappy. Well, one of the things that is implied here, now many of you, I think, know this even if you haven't seen it or acknowledged it. You've seen it if you've been practicing a while. What we're doing, uh, quite simply, is we're learning to pay attention to the breathing. The more we can be conscious of our breathing, that is, the more continuous that is, in, out, in, out, in, out. And as you do it, you get better at it. It's like anything else. Fewer gaps. That is, you're able to be with the breath more continuously. When you lose it, that is, you, you drift away from the breathing, and we all know that one well, we do lots of it. When that happens, more and more you know it, almost immediately, like an alarm goes off. You know, you know you're not with the breathing, and you come back easily uh, without blaming yourself for, for being off. Uh, so little by little, what starts to happen is that uh, uh, you begin to see that just by paying attention to the breathing changes the quality of the breath. It's not that you're trying to change the quality of the breath. It's not control at all. Just by allowing the breathing to just breathe itself, and if you can pay attention to it, what starts to happen is the quality of the breath changes, primarily because thoughts thin out. If you're attending to the breath, you think less and less. And in a sense, there's a direct relationship. The more thinking, the less awareness. The more awareness, the less thinking. In this work, it's like that. So when we start more and more being aware of the breath, doing less and less thinking, the breath starts to assume its natural health. Children have breathed correctly, and then all these emotional hang-ups affect the breath very, very deeply. And so then we have all kinds of restriction and control and uh, blockages to the breathing. So, and then as the breath becomes deeper, more fine, more enjoyable, very, very pleasant, we notice that the body seems to benefit from it. Look at that. We just pay attention to the breathing. As the breath, that changes its quality, then the body's quality changes as well. It kind of comes along. The breath conditions the body. And even the mind changes. You're angry. You're worried. If you can only stay with your breathing, you don't have to try to solve why you're angry or worried. If you can just be with the breath for a while, Perhaps you've noticed that either the anger subsides or disappears or certainly becomes weaker because the, the breath has become more soft, more deeper, uh, and now the, the quality of the mind has changed so that the breath conditions the mind as well. So you begin to see that breath is situated in a central place between mind and body and that we have access to it by simply, in a very ordinary way, pay attention becoming one with the breathing, experiencing it as intimately as we can, and that that has tremendous consequences. That, those are some of the lessons of one and two, contemplation, being able to see the, the, a long breath and know it and a short breath and know it. By implication, it's all the different 
characteristics of the breathing. Now, some of you know, have come to interviews, that sometimes I'll ask you questions about the breath, having to do, you know, is the breath you're enjoying? Is the breath a pleasant feeling? Is, is it unpleasant? Is the out-breath different than the in-breath? Is one long? Is one shallow? One of the reasons I'm asking is because I'm trying to help you. In order to answer it, you have to pay attention. So the answer is really not so important. What's important is it gets you to look more carefully. And it's the looking that really helps. It also helps me know where your mind is. Because it, the breath is uh, sometimes referred to as a yogic thermometer. So as you get to know the ways of breathing, uh, it's, it's a whole subject. But it's, it's, it's not from a book. You can read all kinds of treatises on the breath. It won't help you in this way. You have to get to know your breath. You know, the Buddha had nostrils too. He did the very same practice, apparently, just sitting and following his breathing. And now we're doing it. It's a very human thing. It's very ordinary. Um, it's not particularly Buddhist. I mean, there's no patent. You know, only Buddhists are allowed to do it. Uh, paying attention to the breath. I think that's why it has a lot of possibilities in our modern world. Because probably, you know, many people may not want to be anything anymore, including Buddhists. Fine, but we're all breathing. People usually don't have a political ideology against that. You know, and paying attention, maybe it'll be made into such an ideology that we'll even hate that. Hope not. Okay, what I would suggest, in, uh, we'll continue next week, is that you become a little bit more sensitive to this. You know, start noticing the quality of the breathing in your practice. If those of you who are new to the practice, it's not much more than what I said tonight. Just sit. Don't, don't overdo it. Sit for maybe 20 minutes or so, whatever feels comfortable. And begin to notice the breath and get to know it. Get to know what your in-breaths are like, what your out-breaths are like. Uh, begin to, you may just now, you don't have to do a lot of thinking. It's all going to come to you if you pay attention. You begin to see that how the breath is has consequences. And so it's a very gentle, uh, natural, and easy way to gain some way of taking care of ourselves a lot better. Uh, also, if I could suggest, as part of the homework, uh, begin to learn how to stay in touch with the breathing throughout the day. It's not just in formal meditation. Practice at home. You know, you're just walking from the living room to the kitchen. Just walk naturally and see if you can experience your breathing while you're walking. I don't know if you'll believe me, but uh, when I, I usually wake up in the middle of the night and I have to go and pee. And as soon as I wake up, I, go, I come to the breath now. And I'm with the breath as I walk. Uh, I take care of my biological need. I come back the same way and I just go to sleep. It's not like I'm thinking or scratching or should I pay attention, shouldn't I pay? I don't want to pay attention. This is sleep. I'm, I don't want to work. You know? It just has become a quite natural thing. So, but you have to do it. If you do it and do it and do it and do it and do it, after all, the breath is happening anyway. It's not asking so much. Uh, it's asking you to notice that you're breathing and to the breath and allow it to help you stay awake. Don't use it to, to hide from the world. If, uh, for example, if you're talking to someone, it can help you pay attention. Uh, right now, I don't know, perhaps it helped you listen. While you're driving a car, it can help you stay clear. 
someone is very agitated and you're listening to them, if you stay in touch with even a few breaths, you can stay calm even though they're agitated. So forth. You'll see the potential. We'll go into everyday life in, in detail. But the principle is not complicated. It's bringing the breathing. Uh, wherever you go, no matter how busy you are, you're still breathing. So we're taking advantage of that. And that's kind of, a, it's like a companion. It's like helping us to stay awake. Wherever we go, there's our breath being with us. Um, for the new people and for some of you who've practiced for a while, let me close with a And I think I'm saying this in part, having just come back from being away from here for two months and having done a number of retreats already and uh, hearing what's on people's minds. One of the hardest things for us to learn uh, is to uh, let go of this striving and ambition, having all these gaining ideas. And even when we come to a practice, which uh, the definition of it is we're learning how to be peaceful. We're learning how to be peaceful with ourselves. We're learning, if you can, the first step, if you can learn to breathe peacefully, it all flows from that. Okay, and the instructions make it very clear that it's not to hanker after things, to run after things. But of course, in spite of that, we can't help ourselves. We've had so much education and instruction about, we, in order to mind. I'm doing this in order to get that. I'm at A, and the purpose of being at A is to get to B. Some of us can't even wait for that. We just want to get to Z, skip over all the rest of them. And the instructions are saying over and over again, we say it in so many different ways, uh, the purpose of A is to get to A. Or is we're just trying to get from A to A. We're, we're trying to learn how to be where we already are, how to allow what's happening. And so when you follow the in-breath and the out-breath, uh, it's true. See, in, in my instructions, I know I'm all, I cannot unfortunately, help but contribute to this problem and to your suffering. When I, I say something like, over a period of time, the gaps get, as I said it, I shuddered, you know, that as, you know, you're following the breath and little by little, the mind gets distracted less, there'll be fewer gaps between the breaths. When you fall off the breath, slip off the breath, you notice it more quickly. Uh, that just happens naturally, but anyway, the mind now is going to try to follow breaths more continuously, but somehow there'll be a little bit of extra added. There'll be some anxiety, or if you're doing it, if you feel you're doing it correctly, some pride. Okay, and uh, so in one sense, the breath is a means to an end, because the more you can string conscious breaths together, the more calm you become, the more concentrated you become, and the more fit you become to, to do the work of wisdom. No question about it. So you could begin to easily see that you're following the breath in order to develop samadhi, which of course is in order to develop insight and to get free. And it's all nice and laid out, a schematic plan in, in time. So that somehow wherever we are now is not never good enough. It's that future time. Now we've given you a new uh, pie in the sky. If I can only come to enough retreats here and IMS and three-month retreat and you know, do all this stuff, sometime, I don't know when, we're going to be perfect. Okay, but the spirit, of the, the spirit of the practice is non-dualistic. That means the purpose of being with an in-breath is to be with the in-breath. The purpose of being with an out-breath is to be with an out-breath. It's not to get anywhere. It's to, uh, to enjoy the moment of breathing. 
It's like playing a musical instrument. Just enjoy playing. Uh, if you're playing uh, in order to hear, someone will hear you, and then you'll be invited to Carnegie Hall. And okay, of course, it's all right. But there are people who play music in order to play music. Okay. Now, meditation finally is really that. At least the maturest meditation that I know of. Someone asked me when I came off retreat, "Did you accomplish what you uh, decide? You know what you set for yourself, your goals for the retreat?" I was just, you know, <laughs> person was, uh, and it was a good question. It was uh, an intelligent sensible question. I mean, do I want to go away for two months and just waste my time? Just totally destroy my life for two months? Just be, walk around with my finger in my mouth or something? But the question, uh, it got me to reflect. And I, uh, because the person had not had uh, much experience in meditation, it pressed me to communicate uh, that, that I, it never occurred to me to go, that isn't how I went away and that isn't how I was there. Some valuable things happened, of course. But it's more like, let's say you love to play the violin or the piano or whatever. And someone says, uh, hey, here's some money and here's a house. Uh, you can just play the violin for two months. You know, some of the food will be taken care of and just go and play your violin. Well, if you really love to play the violin, you're not doing it necessarily to get somewhere. You're just enjoying the playing of the violin. Now, the truth is, at the end of the two months, perhaps there'll be much more refinement more depth, more understanding of a piece, and so forth. And it's the same in meditation. Uh, so don't be too hard on yourself. Some of you are, uh, you know, we have, the, whenever it is, you get this disappointed with your practice, it's like an alarm should go off for you. It's, it's, it's telling you you have some gaining idea. You have some notion about how things are supposed to be, and you don't feel that you're, you're up to snuff. And so it's another way to suffer, just like we view sex, academic achievement, uh, beauty, uh, everything. Please, um, what we're learning here is something, uh, it's not, I'm not trying to be corny or romantic, uh, it's the correct attitude to, to accomplish this. The truth is the fruit comes out of allowing things to happen. There's a dynamic force that comes from not so much trying to get anywhere, but being where you are. So, no matter how puny, no matter how pathetic your practice is, <laughs> please cherish it. Just cherish it just the way it is. It's fine. And just, you know, like ply your trade. Just each day, just sit. Uh, get to know your breath a lot more. Okay. Any questions? We have time for just a few more questions. Not a few more, a few questions. <laughs> I'd like to. Sure. This is um, two or three come together of the things you've been saying about me. I'm going to I've been experiencing... Could, could you speak up a little bit? Yes, yeah. certainly. I've been experiencing what you're talking about um, with the breath being uneven and just allowing it to happen, mm -hmm. um, I've been guilty um, because it has been uneven. However, I have just been allowing it to happen. Mm -hmm. And so it's a great relief to hear that that's okay. It's um, being given permission to breathe in a way that I 
uh, was already doing. So yeah, I understand. That feels terrific. Okay, uh, let me add to that. Not only is are you being given permission, but there's great value in it. Let, let me suggest the point. Uh, the question, if you couldn't hear it, is that if the breath is what uneven and yes. not so pleasant. Yes, it's, it's just it's just a state of unevenness. Right. And I've accepted it. Right. For it to be okay to do that, it is okay. But it's even better than okay for the following reason: uh, the breath is going to be very, very different. Sometimes it's smooth. Sometimes it's long. So it's so different, right? There, so that's part of how the attention gets trained. In other words, if the breath were always what. The fa- it's a, each one is a challenge. That's how equanimity develops. In other words, it, the aware, sometimes the awareness is... Every, anyone could pay attention to the breath when it's nice and smooth and easy. Oh, f- wonderful, far out. But this is like a game. It's like a dance, um, the breath. It's, it's, I really enjoy it uh, once I know it's okay. It is, but you see, what I'm trying to say is that the very variety of the kinds of breath is what trains the mind. See, look at it this way. Look at it this way. Let's say the mind, you're able to be a t- pay attention to the mind at this level of subtlety, and awareness can keep up with it, okay? Then suddenly it drops down to a much more subtle level, but awareness is still up here, okay? It's got to drop down to the same level of subtlety, so that's a challenge. Put it another way. The breath becomes awful, you know, like short and rapid and very unpleasant. So at that point, it's much easier to just space out and fantasize, right? Just to, who want, but the practice is to soften, to even embrace and accept, uh, in a sense, the ugly duckling breath. Right. Yeah, so that trains the mind. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, see, so it, it's a virtue, it's good. All right, so following yeah. on Keep that. going. Okay, I'm not quite sure how to put these words because I haven't thought it through. So, um, the the transformation of what comes up from within that you spoke of, uh, what happens if it, if I can go through two or three things and then, because it's joined together, what happens if it's negative? Um, what happens if it doesn't clear? Um, and it was unexpected to me that you said there was so much negative can come up as well. Um, and um, what, uh, what is the use beyond the letting go and the better feeling? Um, that's that piece. And, um, oh, I'm just checking that you are saying that powerful, powerful emotions do come up in meditation. Um, And why was it good to cut down your study? <laughs> are, are you a professor? No. No. Just okay. Uh, is a lot packed in there in what you asked. Um, I don't really mean to say that it's all negative down there or overwhelmingly negative. Okay, what, what, what's there is what's there. Okay, so that... When you're doing the conscious breathing, uh, there's a stage in practice where you have no agenda. Okay. So you're just breathing in and breathing out, and whatever comes up, you're aware of it. And uh, it all arises and passes away without exception. Whether you like it, you don't like it, that's a law. See if it's true. Nothing stays. Everything arises and passes away. Now, what we're learning how to do is how to rest in the breath, to come to rest in the breathing. 
try to feel your way into that, just that term. You come to rest in the breathing. We spend a lot of time learning how to do that. And so from that place, there's a, point, there's a place of stability so that whatever else comes up, and some of it is very easy to be with while we're resting in the breath, but some of it's not. You know, fear of this, fear of that, etc., whatever comes up. So in the process of developing our ability to be with the breathing, our ability to be with everything that's other than breathing is improved. Or being with the breath helps us be with what is other than the breath. And But what we will see, no matter what it is, whether it's in quotes negative, or it's in quotes positive, or if it's neutral, what we're trying to learn is the attitude that we're learning is for everything to be welcome. Totally, without exception. Now, you'll find that you will have preferences. You won't do that. We all have, uh, that's okay, or, that, or when certain things are about to come up, suddenly we don't want to feel it, we're in the refrigerator for two hours. You know? <laughs> You know, so now, it's the, uh, now the process, uh, I can't feed you mentally to the point of the satisfaction I think you, you wish. You'll have to get it from the experience of the practice. The process of doing that, of resting in the breath and then by extension learning how to rest in everything else, how to, uh, to when fear comes up, for it to be okay. You know, like, here comes terror. Come on in, sit down. Okay, I'm uh, In breathing, when something, we'll call it something positive, something good comes up. Like what? Like enjoying a friend's company. You, you mean a feeling of joy in the, in the mind? Yeah, like just, like a good, just a good feeling comes up. Okay, go ahead. Or, or an intellectual concept, an Einstein intellectual And concept. you feel happy that you got it. And you feel happy that you're so wonderful. What I've noticed is, if you can take that for only an instant and then let it go, absolutely let it go, just acknowledge and only a fraction of an instant hold it and let it go, it comes back later as a fully fledged concept through intuition in a different form, in a different time. That may be valuable, but it's not what we're doing. I see. You're working too hard from my point of view. Okay. Well, you know, you don't have to agree with me, but from, from my point of view, uh, you see, first of all, remember I said we're learning surrender. We're learning the art of non-doing, but you're already trying to kind of get some results out of it. I think you might find it tiring. Also, finally, it's, we're going beyond uh, good feelings and bad feelings. That's what I wanted to check with. Yes. To get that out of the way. Yes. Okay, uh, it's not to be rid of them. We're humans, and so we feel. And of course, good feel. In fact, the concentration practice, being with the breath, it's absolutely essential to bring some happiness into the mind and body so that you can go deeper in practice. And as many of you know, just simply paying attention to the breathing as, a, as an exclusive object does bring a great deal of happiness. It's not the final happiness, it's not enlightenment, it's pretty darn good. Have, you know, some of you have experienced, you know what I'm talking about. It's a, a happiness that's so simple, it just comes from breathing continuously for a while. Okay, uh, but that puts us in a position when the mind is got, in other words, in a sense, you're happy enough to now take a real look at your suffering. If you're suffering a lot and there's no bright spot, and someone says, well, why don't you look at your uh, despair? It's very hard to do. You know, probably the mind is so agitated it can't do it anyway. But, uh, but if, there's, if we have developed a source of joy to bring into the system through, through conscious breathing, then we're in a position where certain things turn up uh, which are in quotes negative, but uh, there's, a, there's enough stability coming from the happiness uh, 
to, and, the, and the training that we're doing to be able to fully, in a sense, uh, digest it and transform that energy, to let it go. It all will go and see, everything arises and passes away. Everything, it's impermanent. You don't have to agree with that. Test it. But if it arises, and let's say you're suffering in a moment, you're having uh, uh, pain about something that happened, it will pass. And that's one, you know, our parents told us, oh, don't worry, it'll pass. It does pass. But that doesn't help you so much. What we're doing is we're being conscious of it. So we're conscious of it as it arises, as it operates, and as it passes. So one, it goes out, but it goes out hot. Eventually it cools down and leaves. But when we watch it, by, we're taking much better care of ourselves by watching it consciously. Something happens to the whole nature of the event. But I would suggest uh, that you, do you already know that from your practice? Okay, you will. You will. Okay, now, so then the journey continues. What tends to happen is, uh, in a sense, the storehouse of all the stuff that's inside us, probably equivalent to the unconscious, it starts coming out, coming out, and then there can come a point where there's a stillness, a very deep stillness, which is uh, a point of departure for a dramatic opening. And I don't want to, you know, you, if I say it's the uh, ultimate happiness, then the mind is going to make it into something that's the opposite of sadness. It's not the opposite of anything. Yeah. And it can be called God. It can be called, you know, the names are endless for what that is. And what the Buddha is saying is that simply by breathing consciously, developing that, and then little by little allowing everything else to come out, seeing it, getting to know it, letting it all go, seeing deeply into its nature, that process of surrendering, surrendering to the process, is, has a dynamic force that moves you somewhere. So you do need energy, but it's not striving energy. You do need effort. You can't, nothing worthwhile in this life without energy. But when, the, when you're practicing, if you feel something that's like striving, trying a little bit too hard, uh, pushing the breath a little bit or whatever it is, if you see that, it tends to thin out or even fall away. And little by little, the breath, uh, there comes a point where you experience, in a sitting, you may experience that you're just being breathed, that you are not doing anything, and there's no wish to get anywhere or to become anyone, that you, it's just you're content to just breathe. And, uh, you see there's absolutely no control, that you're being breathed, and that's going in the direction of surrender. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.